the Read to Lead podcast, episode 60. Hi, I'm Susan Barancini Mo, author of Business in Blue Jeans, How to Have a Successful Business on Your Own Terms in Your Own Style. There's no better way to be a work in progress and keep learning than to read or listening to this podcast. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend Jeff Brown. You plus winning the lottery is you in a bigger house. But at a certain point, that giant house that's so amazing to you just becomes your house. And, you know, it, it's no longer extraordinary to you, and it's, it's no longer life-defining. It's just the thing you're used to. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Hi, welcome back once again to the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I am Jeff, and each week we sit down with a successful and inspiring author and discuss his or her latest book, and depending on their area of expertise, their insights on leadership, personal development, career, marketing, business, or entrepreneurship. And in today's episode, we get to chat with David Niven, Ph.D., not the actor, the author, David Niven, Ph.D., author of the book, It's Not About the Shark. How to Solve Unsolvable Problems. In today's episode, David's going to help us understand what we can learn about our fear impulses from Albert Einstein, why simply trying harder is bad advice, how overconfidence can sabotage the process, and a lot more. Quickly, first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Blinkist. Download their app for free. Try it for three days. If you like what you see, you can get a 30% discount on an annual subscription. What is Blinkist? Well, they serve up written book summaries, business book summaries to be exact, that you can consume in about 15 minutes. We've offered some audio versions of those same summaries right here in the podcast this past month. We've got one more coming up in a few days. We hope you're enjoying those. But if you want to check out Blinkist, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. If you like what you see, be sure and hang on to that discount code READ TO LEAD for 30% off an annual subscription. That web address one more time, read to lead podcast.com slash blinkist. David Niven, PhD, best selling author of the 100 Simple Secrets series, is a psychologist and social science, a scientist and has taught at Ohio State University and Florida Atlantic University. He is known internationally for translating powerful research findings into practical advice that anybody can apply to their daily lives. Published in more than two dozen languages, his books show that a more satisfying life can be had with small, sustainable changes in our actions and our attitudes. His latest book, due out November 4th, 2014, is called It's Not About the Shark, How to Solve Unsolvable Problems. David, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's my pleasure to chat with you. Well, mine as well, and I am thoroughly, I must say, enjoying the book. And, and one of the things I, I love about it is the stories that you share. Every, every chapter is filled with four or five stories, and we've got the, the takeaways at the end. And then just in case uh, anything is left to chance, there are a couple <laughs> of tangible ways we can implement uh, those takeaways. I thought it would be cool to start with uh, the story uh, from which the book draws its title. Uh, I had heard that story before, but I know that's not the case for everybody. Well, you know, one of the things that fascinated me is this notion that if you stare at a problem, it gets in the way of finding a solution. And Steven Spielberg 
in the making of Jaws had what anybody would consider to be a big problem. He had spent basically the film's entire budget on a mechanical shark <laughs> to, you know, eat the swimmers. And the mechanical shark was built in a giant tank of water in a pool in California. They shipped it to Massachusetts to make the movie. It worked out that their experts hadn't factored in several things that really proved to be pertinent, like the corrosive effects of salt water. <laughs> they built the shark and fresh water gets into the salt water and, and the salt water starts eating the mechanical shark. And, and it suffered from an amazing array of, of maladies. It, you know, they, they couldn't control its movements. Different pieces of it were breaking. Even the skin of the shark, the polyurethane skin started to puff up and it became this giant sea marshmallow instead of a, instead of a, a fearsome terror of the sea, instead of a Godzilla of the sea. So <laughs> think about this situation. You've spent your film's budget on a prop, a prop that is so central to the film that it appears in the very first scene on the storyboard. The very first thing is going to be giant shark out of the water eats a swimmer. That's how the whole thing gets started. And if you think of this as a problem, you're Steven Spielberg in this situation. You're, the filming's already started and you don't have the shark in a movie called Jaws. What are you going to do? If you stare at this problem, you think, okay, well, I could stop filming and try and repair the shark. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll somehow we'll patch up the skin so it doesn't look like a marshmallow. We'll, we'll fix the, the, the various levers that aren't, aren't working. We try and, and, and do that. And if he had done that, if he'd gone at the problem directly, odds are they never would have finished the movie because the studio would have pulled the plug because it was just cost too much money. Mm. Or he could have said, all right, you know what? We need a better shark. Stop the whole thing. Let's design a new shark. Well, He'd already spent all the money he had for a shark. If he had done that, studio would have said, no, you know, this is not going to work. Or he could have said, you know what, let's do the best we can. We'll, we'll rig up some wires. We'll, we'll pull the shark through the ocean. We'll, we'll make this thing work. And if, if he'd done that, it, he would have made the equivalent of the attack of the 50-foot woman, you know, a, a movie that just would have been laughably bad. And, <laughs> you know, you think about that. You're making a shark movie and your shark's broken. Those are your basic options. Fix it, replace it, or, or jury rig it. And if you stared at the problem, he would have had to choose one of those three things, and he would have failed. And what he did that, that's so intriguing and, and, and is, the, is the theme of the book is he didn't stare at the problem and, and, and think, okay, what do I do? You know, my mechanical shark doesn't work. How do I fix the mechanical shark? Instead, he opened himself up. He didn't stare at the problem at all. He opened himself up. And he came to a notion of making a shark movie without a shark. And anybody who's seen Jaws recently will recall it. This mechanical shark doesn't fully appear on screen for 81 minutes. You know, <laughs> he comes up with this notion: make a shark movie without a shark. And, and now here's the the grand irony of this solution: he comes to believe the movie is scarier without the shark. It's scarier with your imagination. It's it's scarier with that sight line where the camera is half above and half below the water. You know, it's scarier with that music. Dun 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 dun. dun. And all of that. You know, Spielberg comes to believe is actually far more interesting than the mechanical shark itself. And, you know, the, the critics and, and the audiences rave. It becomes the top selling movie of all time, you know, when it's released. And you think about what happened there. If he had looked at this as a problem, odds are there's no movie at all. Odds are, you know, this is this is the end of a very young and, and to that moment promising career. But he flipped it into actually an opportunity. 
and it changed the entire movie and made it better. And and the irony of ironies, he was better off because the shark broke down. And and part of what I'm writing about here is your capacity to address any problem without staring at it and getting caught in the details. Because if you climb inside the problem, it's going to tell you what you can't do. You know, if he'd climbed in and said, "Okay, got to repair the shark." There would have been a list of reasons why that didn't work. If he'd climbed in and said, okay, I need a new shark, list of reasons why that wouldn't work. But he didn't do any of those things. Instead, he said uh, later, he explained that his process was, he thought to himself, what would Alfred Hitchcock do in this situation? And he then thought of approaching this movie, not as a minor league horror movie, but really as something you know, um, unique. And, and that has made the movie unforgettable. Well, as, as a young, impressionable boy, uh, as I was when this film was, was released, I can say that it's single-handedly the reason why I don't surf, I don't <laughs> snorkel. Uh, the closest thing I get to being in the ocean might be on a cruise ship. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it left its, its indelible mark, and, and he didn't need the shark to scare you uh, of shark. That's right. Well, instead of crawling inside a problem, I want to talk about one of these sort of tangible things we can do right now that you leave us with at the end of chapter one. What's one way we can put a problem down right now if you just stay where you are and and you know physically stay where you are if you just keep your mind where you are the odds are that the problem is going to block out the rest of your vision you know whatever it is whatever the thing is that you're confronting so here's a tangible thing you can do and quite literally the research backs this up Go take a walk. I mean, just physically get up from wherever it is. You're, you know, you're at work, you're, you're at your desk, and you have to f- solve something. Physically get up and take a walk. You know, you're at home, you're thinking about a problem. Physically get up and take a walk. Just not being surrounded by the problem is a good, uh, a good step. But here's one of my favorite studies that I talk about in the book. They did an experiment where um, they created a patient file, a patient with a, with a serious condition, and they gave this patient file to doctors and they said, what's diagnose this condition? What should we do based on the details in this patient file? And half the doctors just got the file and half the doctors got the file plus a Hershey candy bar. And that's and it's the exact same file, it's the exact same details, doctors of equal quality and all that sort of thing. And the candy bar doctors did vastly better at getting the correct diagnosis than the others. And what was the difference? The candy bar doctors were separated from the problem for a moment. The candy bar doctors had that moment of, hey, this is pretty nice, I'm eating a candy bar. And it, it freed them up to, to think more clearly and you know, to, to do the best work that they're capable of. So there's an sh- amazing, immense value of taking just a moment for joy out of the situation, whatever circumstance you're facing, whether in this case you're, you know, you're diagno- you know, diagnosing a kidney problem or you know, whatever the problem is that you're working on in life. One of the eye-opening parts of the book for me personally was was when you talked about good things ultimately being secondary to bad things. Good breaks down over time was another way you said it, I think. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, you know, I think we get confused, a lot of folks do, in terms of what they're chasing after and what they, what they think would be satisfying to them. And I, and I mentioned a, a study that, that I found very unique and interesting that, that looked at the happiness levels of two groups. One group was regular, ordinary Americans doing their regular, ordinary American things. And the other group was uh, folks who had won the lottery. <laughs> and you'd think, okay, well, here's an easy one. Who's going to be the happier group? You know, here's an easy one. Who is more optimistic? You know, who's, who's enjoying things more? 
And it worked out the folks who hadn't won the lottery were overall happier. And the folks who hadn't won the lottery were overall more optimistic. And so we, we, we spend a lot of time chasing things, thinking that those are the things that, that address some problem for us, but they're often a distraction. And, and the, the thing of it for lottery winners is, you know, you plus winning the lottery is you in a bigger house. But at a certain point, that giant house that's so amazing to you just becomes your house. And, you know, it, it's no longer extraordinary to you and it's, it's no longer life-defining. It's just the thing you're used to. And, and what the research showed for those, those lottery winners is a lot of the things that they used to enjoy, just regular daily stuff, was less compelling to them. I mean, you know, you think of something you might enjoy today. You, you read a magazine or something. You read a magazine article that you enjoyed. And you think, hey, that's, that's, I really enjoyed that, that 10 minutes or 20 minutes I spent reading there. You know, for a lottery winner, eh, what's, what's another magazine article? I won the lottery. You know, it, it, it has that odd, perverse, you know, effect where seemingly this is a good, but in reality it, it kind of fades over time. And, and the centrality of that to, to the it's not about the shark as a book is, you know, that that's the kind of thinking where if you just focus on, you know, what's immediately in front of you, you would automatically say, just give me more money. That, that would be a good. And in reality – you know, there's, there's a much deeper level of, of what you would find satisfying and what, you know, what would advance your life. It, it can rob us from what would otherwise be joyful moments. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed, too, uh, the discussion in the book about our fear impulses and, and wondered if you could share what we can learn about our fear impulses from observing someone like Albert Einstein. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Einstein and any kind of, of creative genius is their willingness to tolerate criticism and their willingness to tolerate being different and being outside, being outside of, of mainstream thinking, being outside of mainstream behavior. And, you know, I, I relate the, the, this very silly anecdote. Folks have seen the image of Albert Einstein sticking out his tongue, mm-hmm. on, and it's on all kinds of things and posters and whatnot. And, you know, you think about how did that come to be? And what's interesting to me is it came to be because Einstein saw the photographer, knew exactly what he was doing, stuck out his tongue because he thought it would be funny. And then when he saw the photo, he just thought it was fantastic. He just, he, you know, he couldn't get enough of it. So he had, <laughs> he contacts the, the photographer and he gets note cards made up with that image on it. And you, know, you just imagine him and his correspondence writing to these, you know, theoretical physicists and so forth. And, <laughs> and as they open up the card to, you know, exchange learned dialogue with uh, Sir Einstein, what they get is a picture of him sticking his tongue out. And, you know, I think we underappreciate the degree to which that is essential to creative breakthroughs. It's not just the brain power. It's not just the ability there has to be a, a spirit that's open to looking at things in a different way because, you know, all the genius in the world is not going to advance thinking if it's constrained by trying to say things that are acceptable or if it's constrained by trying to replicate what other people are saying and what other people have concluded. He certainly wasn't one who was concerned about how others were going to, to judge him, was he? Exactly right. <laughs> you know, that, you know he, he talked about being willing to, to bear that cost of, of being an independent thinker and, and was perfectly, um, you know, perfectly willing to accept, you know, being, you know, a, a horse for single harness, as, uh, as he would have put it. What can the act of doing something unfamiliar do for your uh, fear problem? Well, 
you know, one of the things in, in trying to come up with a solution to anything is, you know, we tend to limit ourselves to what's readily available. We tend to limit ourselves to what we can quickly grasp. And, you know, this has the effect of meaning that we're not going to come up with a new idea. We're not going to come up with a new solution. You know, we're going to go with something that's very familiar and comfortable and, and close and and we're going to have trouble getting past that trouble you know thinking of a new way and so i write about in the book you know one uh set of studies intriguingly suggests something as simple as looking at abstract art and looking at it and experiencing it even when you don't know what it means even when you know, you're absolutely not sure. Is this, is this, you know, does this have a meaning? Does this have, you know, 17 levels to it? Is it, you know, is that a stick or a person? <laughs> you know, good. Be uncomfortable. Be, you know, um, uncertain. Because if you embrace that uncomfortability and uncertainty, you'll give yourself a chance to be uncertain and uncomfortable when you're looking for a solution. And if you don't do that, then the only solution you can ever go with are the ones you've gone with before. You know, if you don't do that, you know, then you're kind of boxed into the familiar, which means you already have this big problem because of the familiar. Now you're going to go after the big problem with the familiar and you're not going to be able to get past it. I don't know if this is from the same chapter or not, but I, I appreciated the story of Kimberly, who was visiting her, her dad, a former a soldier, a wounded soldier at a veterans hospital, and somebody who didn't have any experience with uh, engineering prosthetic limbs, but because of that, uh, came at it from a completely different angle and is now helping soldiers get over this sort of phantom pain issue that many of them deal with. Well, you know, that is that is one of the stories I do love in the book. You know, this was a, at the time, high school student. And, you know, her, her father was getting um, medical services through the VA. So she spent a lot of time in VA hospitals and VA waiting rooms. And she would talk to the uh, soldiers and former soldiers that she would meet there and, and very openly ask them how they were. And not, not just in a polite way, but in, in a sincere way. And Given the history of our, our country in the last you know decade plus, she met a lot of soldiers who had lost limbs in um, in service, and they would tell her these stories, these extraordinary stories about phantom limb pain because your brain still believes there's an arm, your brain your brain still believes there's a leg, and it sends signals to that leg and to that arm whether they're there or not. And what she heard from these soldiers was that the doctors had no answer they had no real way forward they you know they would prescribe pills and things that had side effects that were worse than the condition in the first place and so you know think about a high school student hearing this and you know you think about what your science project was and if it was you know like mine and the the fake lava coming out of the fake volcano or something you know for her high school science project she did i want to i want to design a better prosthetic and i want to design a better prosthetic that addresses this phantom limb pain and so, you know, though, though only a high school student, she dug in and she came to the, um, you know, wonderful breakthrough that heat could distract uh, the body and that the heat would, would essentially create its own message to the brain. And the brain would focus on why is, why is my, you know, um, you know, leg area, arm area feeling warm now and stop sending through the signals to the leg or to the to the arm to move and 
she tested this, you know, little by little with, with the resources that she had. She had all kinds of, of willing volunteers from the veterans that she had met in the hospitals. And they said it, it helped them and it made, made them feel better. And, you know, I write about her in the book because she's a great example of a willingness to, to think through and see something clearly for yourself because everybody told her nothing could be done. You know, if, if all of the military couldn't figure out a solution and all of medicine couldn't figure out a solution and all of, you know, those, those medical research companies couldn't figure out a solution, you know, what are the odds a 16-year-old in high school with no background or special training in, in medicine or orthotics or any of these things could, could, fi- could fix this? But she could fix it and she could fix it because she wasn't willing to accept you know, that the only answer to this problem was pills, that the only answer to this problem was doing what had already been done. She was coming at this from the outside, so she was willing to think of things that had never been done. And, you know, her, her product has progressed to the point where, you know, she made real prototypes and, and up to the point where, you know, this is this is something that, um, you know, is, is about to go into production and, and to really help, uh, you know, the lives of people who serve their country. Well, David says that one of the reasons we chase problems is to make ourselves uh, seem bigger. Is it true that we believe so strongly in throwing ourselves at problems, David, that most of us would actually physically hurt someone in order to teach them a lesson? Well, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a scary proposition, but uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a classic study in psychology. And I think that it's pretty unimpeachable that if you're told you can do something and it will help somebody learn something, you want to do that thing. Mm-hmm. You want to do that thing. I, you know, all right, I can do this and I'm going to help this person learn. And in this laboratory experiment, this fam- famous Stanley Milgram experiments, uh, you're brought in to a laboratory, to you and another person, and you draw a slip of paper. And the slip either says teacher or student. And you draw the slip and it says you're the teacher. And you're told... You're going to read this list of numbers, and the student is going to memorize it and read it back to you. And if they get it wrong, you're to hit this button. And the button operates an uh, electroshock machine. And, you know, the button it has a it's, – it's like a turn, uh, turn-style button where, you know, the first mark is, is mild, and then there's little gradations all the way up to extreme shock. And you're told, just turn it a little every time they get something wrong, and it'll help them learn. And so the way this works, the student is taken to another room, hooked up to the diodes and whatnot. You sit down, you're given the card with the numbers, you read the numbers into a microphone, the student reads them or uh, memorizes them and, and says them back to you. And <clears throat> extraordinarily, when the student got it wrong and the researcher was standing over your shoulder, they'd say, okay, turn the knob, people turn the knob. And when they got a second one wrong, the researcher said, turn the knob some more people turned the knob some more. And when they got a third one wrong, people ter- kept turning it. And the vast, vast majority of these folks were willing to turn that knob because this is how they were going to you know, teach this lesson. This is how that other person was going to get better, even though what they were doing was insane, even though you know, <laughs> indefensible. And, and they got completely separated from their own you know, logic and ability. And, and that's what I mean by you know, sort of staring at the problem. They're, they were trapped inside the problem. There was no way out. Research, you know, the researcher says, turn, I've got to turn this thing, you know, <laughs> otherwise they're not going to learn. And, you know, the whole thing was, was carefully orchestrated so that every participant who came through the door 
drew the slip of paper that said, uh, you're the teacher. And, you know, the student was actually an actor and the screams that they, you know, and the ouches that they called out every time you hit the knob were, you know, were, you know, created, were fictitious. But the participants didn't know that, but they were so deep inside the problem. And, and this is where, you know, it plays exactly into solving the problem of phantom limb pain. If you thought for yourself, if you thought for yourself, you wouldn't for a moment hurt somebody to teach them how to memorize numbers. You know, if you thought for yourself, you wouldn't take no when the military and when the you know medical establishment and the medical industrial establishment tells you there's nothing that can be done about phantom pain. You wouldn't do that. And so one of the sort of the 101 points, foundational points of solving a problem is, and goes right back to Einstein as well, you have to be willing to listen to yourself. You have to be willing to see this the way you see it, because otherwise – if everybody else is trapped inside a problem, they're going to tell you no, and they're going to you know, shut down your own creative responses. I think there's a lot here, too. I'm not a parent, but as I read through the book, I, I saw a lot of application for parents. In fact, there are some examples to, to that end. We're often told, and, and I got this advice occasionally when I was younger uh, and even today still, to simply try harder uh, if, if tackling a problem the first time falls flat, uh, that the difference between winning and losing is basically effort. So what's wrong with, with that advice? Well, the biggest thing that's wrong with it is if you are responding to a problem purely with effort, you're going to run right at the problem and you're going to give the problem even more control over you. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you have something that's really important to you and it's a real big problem and you respond to that by maximum effort, then that problem is going to completely dictate its terms to you. That problem is going to completely you know, um, limit where you can go. And, and all the effort in the world is not going to help advance you when you don't actually have a solution. You're just going to get stuck uh, deeper and deeper inside it. And I, I wrote about this, this, um, this infamous case of a um, group of firefighters, smoke jumpers, way back in the, in the 1940s in Montana. And this fire in, in Man Gulch. And <clears throat> they get dropped from a plane. They parachute in. And in this case, they, they, they thought this was a 10 o'clock fire is what they called it because uh, 10 o'clock fires were the kind that they'd have finished by 10 o'clock in the morning the next day and they could all go home. And these smoke jumpers, all they fought fires with were, were pickaxes and shovels and the kinds of things they could carry on their backs. They didn't have any, any even water. They had no, uh, you know, no more advanced tools. And so they, they parachute into this, into this fire and they're starting to come up with a plan for how to attack it when the fire jumps a, a gulch, which they thought was going to separate you know, the fire from, from the mountain. And <clears throat> the fire jumps the gulch, and almost to a man, the firefighters think, well, it's time to work harder. It's time to go at this harder. Get your pickaxes ready. We're going for the fire. And the, the, the leader, the, the commander of the group said, we, there's no time for that. We don't have the tools for this. The only way we can survive is to lie down, create a, a little space in the ground, lie down and hope the fire goes after, over us. Because if we just go after the fire, we're going to lose and we're not going to be able to fight fires again. And so the rest of the troop ignores him. They go running off to pick a, pick a place to make their stand. And the fire was faster than them. And, and tragically, they lost their lives. And <clears throat> the leader of the troop who dug down and hoped the fire would pass over him. In fact, that's exactly what happened. The fire passed over him. It consumed everything that it could. And then he lived to fight more fires. And, you know, the example here is 
effort was the worst thing his um, his fellow smoke jumpers could have done the absolute worst thing now i mean you always think try harder try harder it's that it's the most fundamental thing in life no it's not think think is the most <laughs> fundamental thing mm. try harder can actually you know those smoke jumpers they didn't of course do these th- things intentionally to hurt themselves but they understood you know, to their core what do you do in a fire you fight you fight with everything you have but in the bigger picture if they had been able to see as their leader did that there was no future in that they would have been able to save themselves and to fight more fires you know quite literally another day well we've all heard the phrase two heads are better than one Uh, how can competing against yourself often be as you say better than maybe bouncing your ideas off a group well you know i write a little bit about competing against yourself in the context of all right, I already have an answer here to whatever this question is. How can I possibly come up with a better one? If I, mean, if I had a better answer, it would be my answer. And, <laughs> you know, so I write about competing against yourself in the sense of, you know, if you're working on something and you need a, a creative idea, yeah, well, try morning you and the ideas you come up with in the morning versus afternoon you. Try you at home versus you at work. You know, try you today versus you tomorrow. The best idea you can come up with today versus the best idea tomorrow in the sense that if you can give yourself multiple chances to look at something and look at it fresh, you may well come up with something entirely different. You know, the the key is to not get trapped inside that first idea and, and to let it dominate. So that's why I say, you know, there has to be a change of context. It can't just be you know, you right now sit down and give me your best two ideas. Odds are those two ideas are going to be pretty close together. But you this morning, take some time, come up with your best idea. Now put yourself in a new context at lunch or somewhere else. Now come up with your best idea. You have a chance to, to look at it from a different perspective. And that's, that's going to be critical to coming up with a creative solution that's different than the first thing that came to mind. And where I re- warn about just throwing people at a problem, just throwing people at a situation is that – if you are inclined to let a problem you know, sort of trap you and tell you what uh, can be done, well, everybody else you know is inclined to do that. And so you know, they, in all likelihood, are just going to pull you back into the problem. And in some cases, they're going to point out problems with your ideas that you know, leave you worse off than you were in the first place. <laughs> so you know, I'm, I'm a skeptic that simply throwing people at a creative task moves you forward or moves you toward a solution. David, how have you seen overconfidence sometimes sabotage the process? Well, you know, one of my favorite examples that I write about in the book is how is it possible? Just just try and wrap your mind around this. How is it possible that in men's college basketball today, Division One men's college basketball, that the teams are scoring less than they were 50 years ago? I mean, how is that, how is that even conceivably possible? Mm. People are taller. There's a three-point shot. In, in every respect, um, the coaches – are professional, you know, in in their task in the sense that this is all they do. They're college basketball coaches, 365 days a year. This is their job. How is it that in every respect things should be easier for them and yet it's harder? And I write about this notion that they are so certain 
that that as coaches, they are so certain that they make a positive influence. They are so certain that they are critical to the moment by moment progress of their team that they stifle their own teams. That mm-hmm. you know they inject themselves. Any of you, anybody who's watched a college basketball game in the last you know twenty years, how many timeouts do they call? How many times are they calling players over? Sometimes even when the ball is in play, they'll be <laughs> calling their point guard over. Why? Because in their minds. The thing that their team needs more than anything is a little bit more of them, you know, <laughs> a little bit more wisdom. And that's overconfidence. That's the sense that you are so good at what you do that, you know, there's, there should be no boundary on, on your input. And, and, you know, that is it's clearly deleterious to their team's health. You know, I mean, how are they how are they going backwards in, in, in time? You know, it's you know, we, we should have, you know, set shots and peach baskets for the number <laughs> of points being scored in college basketball these days. Being a graduate of Indiana University, I, oh I've, sure, <laughs> I've, I've seen my share of you know Bobby Knight doing his thing. <laughs> Explain what you mean when you suggest that we attempt to fail with joy. I thought that was a fascinating discussion. Well, you know, part of this this whole idea of, of being able to find solutions is not being so hemmed in by the need to get an answer immediately, get the right answer immediately, give yourself some room to maneuver. And, and I mentioned that the folks at Pixar who make, you know, those um, fantastically popular animated movies, you know, they have as a philosophy that they want their initial draft of a movie to fail. They want their initial efforts to fail. And why do they want them to fail? Because it opens up new possibilities. You know, if, if they wanted every first draft to be acceptable, then there would there'd be no risk taking. If they wanted every first draft to be, you know, sterling, then nobody could do anything new. And so they want a failure and they want to see what they can learn from that failure. And you know, I think that's that's critical to being able to move past the stage of always doing what you've already done. You have to embrace that notion of failing with joy. I love Ed's book, Creativity Inc. Uh, highly recommend that one. I'm I'm sure you've read that. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, I want to touch on some questions not directly related to the book. There's plenty about the book we haven't yet covered. Before we move on to those other questions, David, is there anything else from the book you want to make sure we know? Well, you know, I would just say that from our conversation already today that, you, you know, you get the essence of this of this notion. And I think that um, the most important thing that, that comes through in the book is that regular people are capable of the most extraordinary contributions and you know i think that there's a there's a notion among folks that if i haven't done something extraordinary already i'm never going to do something extraordinary or a notion that you know there's this superset of people who solve problems and then there's everybody else and and i think one of the, the sort of the underlying themes here is no that everybody makes uh, potentials has the potential to make an extraordinary uh, contribution and, and just briefly you know I, I write about the situation in which this Japanese railway is um, is tunneling through to build super trains, and one mountain in particular keeps filling up with water, and they can't come up with a way to get the water out of this tunnel. Uh, they can't waterproof the walls. Nothing's working, and so they bring in the top people in the company, the best engineers, and they all say, okay, well, we're going to need a very elaborate system of pumps and aqueducts. It's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time, but it's the only thing that can be done. And while this plan was being drawn up at one point, a maintenance worker in the company happened to be, you know, on site and he was thirsty. And, you know, he bent down while he was in the tunnel, took a scoop of the water and said it just tasted extraordinary. It's the best water he'd ever had. <laughs> and they wound up bottling it. They wound up, the train company 
uh, bottling the water, selling it on the train platforms, and started making money from the water that that was in the tunnel. And and you know the point of this is those engineers saw a problem. Water in a tunnel, we can't have water in the tunnel. And they never in their lives would have thought, what do you do with water? You drink it. It never would have occurred to them that water is an asset. And so, you know, be very clear that great ideas come from everywhere and they come from everyone if they're willing to look at things, you know, a little differently, if they're willing to see, you know, possible solutions instead of just problems everywhere. It's like when Procter & Gamble sold off uh, the specialty coffee leg of their business and then Starbucks comes in and goes, hey, we can make a business out of this. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, that, as, I, as I mentioned in the book, Procter & Gamble had this fantastic line of Italian coffees that, that sold in cafes there. And this is all before the coffee craze in the United States. And the Procter & Gamble leadership looked at this and said, well, this is weird. This is, this is not what we understand. This is not Folgers freeze-packed crystals. And, and, they, and they dumped it, and they, they, they literally gave away a, you know, a golden market that they knew uh, you know, how to do before Starbucks you know, was even, uh, you know, uh, was even in, up and running. And, and they've since left the coffee business entirely, have they not, Procter & Gamble? Yeah, now they're out of the coffee business entirely. I mean, they, you know, at, this, at the outset, a day's sales in, of their coffee was, was more than, than the entire uh, Starbucks organization would sell in a year. And now they're out of coffee entirely because mm-hmm. they saw cafes and, and coffee culture as, as, as weird, as a problem. And, you know, they understood people who, who consumed bad coffee and they, <laughs> they did it with a little, you know, bitter, bitter face and, and then moved on with the rest of their day. They didn't understand savoring something and enjoying it. Well, we mentioned the 100 Simple Secrets series uh, that you've written. Of course, your work uh, has been published in a couple dozen different languages. So you've, you've impacted a lot of people already with things you've done. At the end of the day, David, what do you hope your legacy to be? In this book and, and, and the other books that you mentioned, what I'm really trying to do is to take great research and put it in a format that anybody could use, that anybody could put to use in their life. And I love not having to have a PhD, though I'll say that right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, this, is, this is to take great research that academics write and, and, and put it, translate it into a language anybody can read mm. and, and use. And I think that you know, the typical academic mindset is what do you accomplish you know, in academic work? You write a, a very important study and you write it in a way that only 23 other people in the world could possibly understand. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the mindset. And mm. so you know, my work – in, it's not about the shark and the 100 simple secrets of happy people and, and everything that I've done here is let's take that research and, and, and take down the barriers that would keep anyone who, who could use it, who could really legitimately use it, uh, take down the barriers that would keep them from finding it and, and putting it to good use. And so, you know, I think that if academics in general would, were to consider how to make what they do actually useful um, you know if they were to consider how to actually think about an audience that that is directly uh, you know affected by what they're writing about you know that would be you know a very healthy thing for the vast range of, of great research that's done in the social sciences and the sciences as well. well we mentioned uh, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull a moment ago. Uh, wondering if you could name for us, David, a couple of books that you've uh, read or are maybe currently reading that have had an impact on you and maybe share how or why they've impacted you as they have. Well, absolutely. I just read just recently uh, Anatomy of Injustice by Raymond Bonner. And this is a um, former New York Times reporter writing about a, a murder case in South Carolina where basically 
um, from the very first moment the police turned their attention to a, a particular um, suspect and they, they never lost their focus on this person, even though the evidence didn't really match up. And the, the gentleman wound up convicted. The courts threw out his conviction because of, of some chicanery. He was convicted a second time. The courts threw that out. He was convicted a third time. He wound up in, uh, in prison for 30 years for a crime that he didn't do that DNA later showed he had nothing to do with. And what fascinates me about this book and, and you know, ties in completely to um, the research in my, in my book is this idea that, you know, that folks saw the problem okay, we have, we, have a, we have a murder case, we need a suspect, and never, you know, never once had the capacity to think of the limitations of their efforts, never once had the capacity to acknowledge, you know, that, that once they had taken a step in a particular direction, they'd never, never thought to question, you know, question that. And I think that it's a tremendous leadership lesson, whatever, uh, whatever um, arena you might work in, that, once we start heading in a direction, we are, we are programmed, we are set to believe it's the right thing to do. And it can really be a devastating thing if you take that first wrong step and then you give yourself this boost of confidence that you're completely right. And you, and you don't, and, you know, in this case, literally the evidence, you know, uh, in, a, in a murder scene, but in any context, if you don't look at the evidence and, and let yourself openly consider whether you're heading in the right direction. And, you know, I mentioned in the book, one of my favorite studies, really of all time, it's an obscure little study nobody's, nobody's ever heard of, but it was a, uh, it's a fantastic study. It's at a horse race track. And the researchers, um, they, they, they picked on two particular groups of people. One was folks who were one step away from placing a bet. So they were online to place their bet. They're just about to hand over their money and bet on the horse. And then they also focused on a second group, different different bettors who were one step away from placing the bet. They just handed down their money to taking one step away from, um, you know, from the terminal. And they asked folks, how confident are you that you picked the right horse? Mm. And so nothing has happened. The, the race hasn't happened. Literally, the only thing is half of the folks they spoke to were one step away from handing over the money and half were one step uh, removed from handing over the money. And the folks who had already put their money down were 38% more confident they had picked the right horse. All they had done, the only thing that had happened is they'd committed to that path and they became 38% more confident. The horse didn't get faster. You know, the, you know, the conditions didn't change. The jockey didn't get 38% better, but they'd taken the step and they'd gotten 38% more confident. And I think that's a, it's a great lesson. It certainly applies in anatomy of injustice, but it applies in almost any walk of life that you have to be cognizant of that, of that danger, that very, very first step where nothing actually has happened. You didn't do a better job just because you started, but you're much more confident that you're right. Mm. Well, I know uh, the book is just coming out at the time we're, we're publishing uh, this conversation, but I'm curious to know what's next on the horizon for you, David. What are you working on now that you're, you're excited about? Well, I'm, I'm doing some research. I'm, I'm contemplating um, sort of the power of contrasts in people's thinking and people's experiences and, and, and contrast as a, as a source of motivation and contrast as a, as a sort of a source of, of potential success. And, you know, by contrast, I mean, think about how differently your attitude toward, I don't know, a, uh, a tiny bag of peanuts is when you're on an airplane versus when you're at home. 
You know, there are things that you would never eat at home because you have all these choices uh, available to you. But when, you know, when something is, you know, in isolation, it might be of extraordinary value to you. So I'm working on, on some research in that direction and thinking about how that could be applied to uh, one's motivation in, um, in work and, and one's, you know, sort of capacity to, to, to think of new ideas and go in new directions. Well, the book, again, is It's Not About the Shark, How to Solve Unsolvable Problems, due out November 4th, 2014. You're going to love the stories, I promise, uh, that really help you internalize uh, the concepts being taught. I am absolutely loving it. I know you will, too. David, thank you so much for, for being our guest today. We really appreciate it. It's been my great pleasure talking to you, Jeff. There is indeed nothing like a great story, and this book is packed with them. To find out more about the book, about David, how to connect with David on Twitter and elsewhere, just visit the show notes page for this episode. Easy to find. Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash zero six zero for episode 60. I want to mention another podcast you might want to consider checking out from my friend Jason Bay. Jason is passionate about millennials and hosts the Gen Y Success Show. He highlights successful millennials across the world and digs into their success as entrepreneurs and business people. Jason says what you go through between the ages of 18 and 22 often determines your career opportunities well into your 20s and 30s. It's a well-crafted show. He includes interviews from current employees with companies like Google, Deloitte, ESPN, and many others. It's a relatively new show, but one I think is well-deserving of your time. You'll find it at genysuccess.com. That's G-E-N, the letter Y, success.com. Please consider visiting our sponsor, Blinkist, readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. The discount code is READTOLEAD for 30% off an annual subscription. And finally, I want to say thanks to everybody this past week or so who has rated and reviewed the podcast. Thank you to Alex Harris at alexdesigns.com, giving it a five-star review, calling it a must-go-to podcast. Thank you, Alex. Also, secretstairways.com gives it five stars. And My Real Salt says this show really brings it with another five-star review. Thank you so much. I hope that you'll take the time to give this show a rating and review. If you happen to think it five-star worthy, I'll be sure to mention your name on a future episode. Two ways you can rate and review the podcast, readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes or readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. That's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the final bonus episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to Lead.